the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. Celebrating our 10th year of ministry on AM 630 The Word. Visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I am Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as the announcer just said, this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. All you need to do is to provide the phone call. 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, I remind you, if you're in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Um, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be um, in the last chapter of 1 Kings. I'm actually going to do the first 38 verses. And 1 Kings and 2 Kings are really just the continuation in the Hebrew Bible. It's just one continuing book. Uh, so we're going to go directly into 2 Kings by finishing 1 Kings 22 and then going to 2 Kings chapter 1 next week. But tonight in particular is a... A wonderfully useful, it's not an easy Bible study, but it's a a wonderfully practical and useful study for all of us. And I think it'll hit a lot of us right where we live. So I would encourage you to come and join us at 7 o'clock if you can't be here. And we've always got plenty of room on Wednesday nights. So if you can't be here, uh, you can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com. And then, of course, Paula will be with us in the studio tomorrow on the date day edition of the program uh, that's the highlight of every Thursday. So that's what's coming up. Let's get right to questions while we await your phone calls. Um, this one is anonymous. It says, hey, Pastor On, I had a question from last Friday's sermon in First Thessalonians, and I may have completely misunderstood what you were saying. Toward the end of your sermon, you referred to First John, where there it talks about sin that leads to death. I think I understood that you have known people that you're sure in heaven, but their hearts got so hard that God had to take them away. Does that mean that God may use a sickness or accident and allow them to pass away so that they won't sin anymore or have such a hard heart? Um, I've been fighting with myself asking you this question. I don't want to offend you if I misunderstood and I want to understand. Uh, Anonymous, thank you for asking. And and this is not just for you, but for everybody. There's no questions that offend me. So the only question that offends me is the question that isn't asked. Uh, That's what this program is all about. Uh, We want these things uh, to be cleared up in your mind. And I, I hope that my answers are clear enough to do that. In this particular 
um, uh, incident. First uh, John says there is a sin that leads unto death. It's chapter five. There is a sin that leads unto death. I think it's verse nineteen, eighteen or nineteen. But um, I'm, I'm not looking at the Bible right now. Um, there is a sin that leads to death. John says I'm not talking about that sin, but then he goes back into context. And and yes, there are sins that we can commit uh, where the consequences are so severe that God takes us out. And I don't mean that in a judgment way. I don't mean that it caught, we lose our salvation. But I think, Anonymous, that it's God's way of protecting us from doing uh, more damage, um, from from destroying our relationship with him to the point of, of irrepair. And so um, uh, he says there are um, times when people sin so grievously um, that they, they die. Um, I personally don't think it's like accidents or or those kind of things. Um, um, God wouldn't jeopardize other people. Um, but but referring to my statement that I know people. Um, now, I'm not God, and I certainly don't have any um, unusual insight into this, but I've known people who were fine one day and dead the next. And, and then we found out that those Christians, and I'm not doubting their salvation at all, they were involved in really, really horrible things. One of the leaders of the early Calvary Chapel movement days came out of a gay lifestyle. Uh, God used him to do miraculous things. I mean, literally miraculous things during the Jesus People revival. Uh, and then after years go by, and I'm talking maybe 10 or 15 years, uh, he returns to a gay lifestyle and, and he dies. I have no doubt he's in heaven. Um, you know, our Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. Um, but um, he couldn't. Too much is given, much more is required, Jesus said. And he simply could not be trusted uh, with his gifts and calling any longer. Uh, I've also, uh, on this program, in response to the question in First John chapter 5, um, I've been asked about um, other examples. Uh, there, there, when we first got to Texas, I don't know how long ago this was, but there was a, 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 a woman named Carla Faye Tucker who was on death row. Uh, she committed heinous crimes in prison. She got so radically saved that everybody, guards, everybody wanted her out. But of course, that wasn't going to happen. That would have violated the law. And God allowed her to be uh, put to death. And uh, she was put to death in spite of everybody's protest. The sins that she committed deserved death. Now, there is no doubt that she's in heaven and those sins were wiped away. But there is earthly consequences to sins that we commit. And then I have known a few other personally. And and again, I I have no particular insight other than to say um, one day they were doing fine. And then the next day they had a a shocking death or uh, a, a few days later they had a shocking death. And then information came out about some of the things that they were involved in. So um, it, it's a pretty obscure reference, Anonymous, uh, but um, um, God, of course, knows everything. He knows our hearts. He knows our future. And this would be a death that would protect people from causing harm to others or sinning to such a point that their relationship with God would be completely severed. So that's what I can think of. It's First John chapter 5, verse 16, not 18. So uh, I hope that answers your question, Anonymous. Again, when we're talking about these kinds of questions, uh, these are things that we're not going to get the, the complete explanations for, the answers for, until we get to heaven. So I hope that makes sense to you. Here's a question from Pedro from our email inbox. Um, Pastor Ron, I asked my wife to leave a situation that may be dishonoring to God. She said she believes I'm right. However, she wants to wait for the Lord to tell her, is she right? Now, Pedro, right after this question, I'm going to answer another question that is sort of similar. And uh, we'll we'll just take these two together. Um, Whenever we're in a situation that dishonors God, uh, we don't have to wait for the Lord to tell us to leave. We need to leave, period. 
Uh, that's so simple. And, and I think sometimes we Christians, we try to make things so spiritual. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait and ask God myself. That's just typically a stalling tactic, tactic Pedro, when, when the believer says, well, I know I shouldn't be do this, but, but God understands or, or uh, I need to hear from God on my own. Uh, the Bible has told her to follow your spiritual lead. Uh, you are in agreement that the situation she's in is dishonoring to the Lord. Uh, to wait one more minute is disobedience and a lack of faith. So no, she's not right. Uh, she needs to leave and take that sin for God. And her faith needs to understand that that uh, God God will be honored by the state the the, the uh, stand that she takes for Him. So. Um, the Bible is really clear. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And when you've asked your wife to do that, her response ought to be, uh, I'll do it. I'll do it. You're responsible to pray. You're responsible to lead. She's responsible to submit and to follow. And uh, in this particular case, especially because she's in agreement with you, uh, this is just something that she needs to do. She needs to be obedient. Nothing good ever comes from disobedience, from waiting. And as I indicated, typically, and I don't know you, Pedro, or your wife, but typically this is just, well, I'm just not ready to give this up yet, or I'm not ready to leave this situation yet, or I'm not really really ready to to make waves yet, so I'll just wait. And often, uh, Pedro, we hear people say, well, I'm waiting till the Lord gives me peace. There's never peace about difficult things. That's why we need faith. And it's just one of those things that now is the time to be obedient to God. Do you love your situation or do you love Jesus? And it really is that simple. Thank you for that question, Pedro. Uh, Here is a question from Mary, and this is a similar one uh, in principle. uh, Different circumstances. This one is from our email inbox. Uh, My husband always speaks about divine appointments. We believe we need to address an issue with a family member. He says, I'm right, but wants to pray about it and wait for a divine appointment. When do we use the divine appointment excuse? I'm not sure if he's trying to sound holy, but I think it is an excuse for him not to address a concern of ours. What are your thoughts? When are divine appointments supposed to be used? Mary, divine appointments are never supposed to be used in this context. A divine appointment is any uh, th- those appointments that God sets up in your life that you're not even aware of. Um, you know, we'll, we'll I, as we mentioned on the program on Thursdays, especially Paul and I, we share our faith wherever we go. People know who we are, and uh, we're at, we always ask God for some divine appointments. People's hearts who have been prepared to hear something from the Lord. It may be just the gospel. It may be a word of knowledge or word of wisdom, or something like that. And if God gives us those words, uh, he's going to provide the divine appointment. It's that simple. Uh, This is nothing more than an excuse um, to keep from addressing an uncomfortable situation. That's all it is. And um, if he thinks you're right, um, the divine appointment, now it's on his shoulders to make that divine appointment to call this person or go talk to this person face-to-face. And by the way, that's always better. Um, simply to say, okay, here's what we want to address, the issue that we think that, that we're having with you. And um, and it'll be an opportunity to share the gospel. It'll be an opportunity to set things straight between you. Uh, but no, there's no such thing as a divine appointment in the context that your husband is asking about. That's called... Um, procrastination. That's called, I'm uncomfortable. I'd rather just hope and pray that this situation goes away. And Mary, it's something that at one time or another, almost all of us are guilty of. I have learned the hard way that any situation that I don't address quickly always and only gets worse. It never gets better. Um, you know, I can fool myself into thinking for a few days that I don't really need to do this and, and God will set something up. Um, but, but these are times when we have to walk in obedience by faith and we've got to tell 
um, the person, in your case a family member, what the issue is. And we've got to sit down and speak with them about it. And that's when the Holy Spirit, because of your obedience, the Holy Spirit will come upon both of you. And um, how they respond then is between them and the Lord. But I want you to make—I want you to be clear about something, Mary. How they respond is between them and the Lord. But how you obey, or refuse to obey, as a husband and wife—remember, you're one flesh. Um, that's also between you and the Lord. And if He's put this issue on your heart, and if you're in agreement with it, um, then this is the time to make that divine appointment. Some divine appointments just happen to you as just God leading and directing your steps. But other divine appointments, we're the ones that need to take the initiative. So Mary, this is something that needs to be done and it needs to be done now. And again, I want to repeat, when we delay these things, we typically are only causing more difficulty and the situation gets worse and not better. Thank you for the question, Mary, and appreciate your listening to the program very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's go to Jim from San Antonio on line one. Jim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thanks, Pastor Ron, for taking the call. Appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. I a question, question uh, about an account in chapter 14 of Luke. Uh, it's a instance where one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to his house to eat, and they're trying to trip him up. And uh, I'll preface it, I was thinking, I, I, I heard on occasion a lady trying to encourage a mom who had a special needs child, and she was the mom was really trying to do the best she could. And the, the lady said, you know what, there must be a special place in heaven reserved for you. Well, that woman wasn't a Christian, so it was like she was kind of trying to encourage her in a way that wasn't biblical. So... The reason I asked about that is that later on in the passage, Jesus went on and he says to the man who invited him, he says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your neighbors, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, lest they invite you and you in, you in return and repayment come to you. But when you in, give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So was that just a general statement, or was he saying to this man, he wasn't probably being open about it, was that guy a Christian? Because the only way he could be rewarded was if he was in the kingdom. It just intrigued me that Jesus would say that specifically. I mean, he didn't say it to everybody who was there assembled, to the other Pharisees. So I was just intrigued by why Jesus promised that guy he'd have a reward. Well, keep in mind, Jim, that that the parables in context are telling a story um, to highlight a spiritual principle. So it's not a real situation at all. Now, some of the applications, especially in Luke chapter 14, the applications are very, very real. But but this parable was a rebuke to the to the, the Pharisees that were there, the religious leaders that were there. Um, who who were trying to trap Jesus um, because Jesus was uh, healing. First, there was a man suffering from dropsy. Later, uh, there comes somebody else. Um, but what they're trying to do is say, look, is it is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Um, and, and Jesus, as he broaches the subject with them, they had nothing to say. So Jesus took that particular man, he healed him, and sent him away. And then he asked them, um, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. So remember, there were no Christians then. This was Jesus' ministry was to Jews, and it was very, very Jewish. Now, the people that came to him by faith are the people that believed in him and, and his mission on earth. They're people that we would now say are Christians. We'll see those people in heaven. But when Jesus is telling the parable about uh, a reward in heaven or a special place in heaven, um, what he's saying is that if you do these things with the right heart, and, and I always say motive is everything, then God is going to be the one who blesses you. And Luke chapter 14, the whole chapter, is about um, the initiative, you know, who, whose initiative do we come and what is our motive? Um, um, it's the, the, the friend who, 
who uh, takes the lowest place and he's moved up by the host to a better place, um, following the, the guests who are picking the places of honor at the table. And Jesus said, wait a minute, don't take that place because they may um, ask you to step down and then you will be embarrassed. And it's uh, talking about humility. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And um, so so when he says in it's the 12th verse, uh, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And the assumption there, Jim, is that uh, the person who is serving God by serving others and doing so with the right heart is somebody who has already believed in and received the uh, essence of Jesus' teaching. So again, remember, there are no Christians there. And we have to understand this in context. And, And this entire chapter is a rebuke to those religious leaders who were um, trying to set him up. You know, they were always trying to set him up. There was another case. They put a man, Mark's gospel, they put a man uh, with a a withered hand hand in front of him on the Sabbath in the synagogue uh, where Jesus couldn't miss him when he walked by. And they were always trying to catch him in a, what they consider to be a violation of the law, and whether it's that this particular incident, Luke chapter 14, or the others, we know Jesus didn't violate the law. So this is the spirit uh, behind the law. And Jesus was simply saying, when you do something for others and you don't do it to get repaid, um, then you're the one who will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So the righteous, of course, we look back 2,000 years later and understand that means those of us who have gone to heaven, we've been born again. Um, The Jews didn't have that kind of a perspective. So Jesus is still teaching at this point. Jim, thank you for that question. I, you know, we're going through the Gospel of Mark and it just never seems to end um, the, uh, uh, I marvel at the depth of Jesus' teaching. Please, as you're reading these things, this is for you, Jim, and for everybody else, we, we need to understand the Jewishness of the, the ministry and the Jewishness of Jesus' teachings. Remember, Jews felt that by having the law, being descendants of Abraham, they were going to go to heaven. And Jesus is saying, no, it's a lot more involved in that. And it begins in John chapter 3, where Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then he builds on that through all of the uh, the, uh, the gospel synoptic or the gospel of John. Good question. Thank you. Here's a question from our email inbox anonymously. You have mentioned that you believe the rapture will occur on a certain Jewish holiday in one of your sermons, and I forgot which one it was. Would you mind explaining your reason for that holiday? Thanks, and God bless you. Uh, Anonymous, this is really not a big deal at all. I believe uh, that the rapture, when I say believe, uh, this is nothing more than opinion. Uh, We have no indication whatsoever, scripturally, that the rapture or the second coming of Jesus is going to come on a Jewish feast day at all. Um, but but I'm a little bit of a mystic. I like thinking about these things. And uh, this is the Feast of Trumpets. Um, it is the call to arms, the call to action. Um, Rosh Hashanah, it's also called. The day uh, after that is, is uh, Yom Kippur, uh, the Holy Day of the Lord. Uh, and um, that's that's when uh, the, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. And um, I, I just... For no reason other than it's, it makes sense to me. Uh, again, I want to emphasize that does not mean it's true, but it makes sense to me that um, that if it were going to happen on a Jewish festival or Jewish feast day, that would be the one uh, because the the trumpet, um, the, the the call to action is really what that's going to be the trumpet call of God. Remember, not a literal trumpet. But the trumpet call of God, it's a call to readiness. And that's what uh, the Feast of Trumpets was really all about. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it. And um, I'm very careful when I say things like that. And I know people don't always hear this. 
but I say, I believe. Uh, you know, a lot of times in my, my Bible studies, I will say, okay, get ready for an opinion alert. And I let people know, this is just my opinion. It's a studied opinion, and I believe it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's it's right or that it's the, the truth. Um, and, and I want people to, to study on their own and make their own choices. And as I said, we have no indication whatsoever that the rapture of the church or the second coming of the Lord is going to come on a Jewish festival day. Um, but it would be cool if it did. Um, you know, I go out every morning and look at the eastern sky thinking today could be the day. I, I'm confident he's coming from the east. But uh, beyond that, we don't know when or at what time. Thank you for that question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here's a question from John. He says, Hebrews says that God disciplines those he loves. Does he discipline us by making us sick or giving us cancer? How does he discipline us? You know, John, uh, God doesn't give people cancer, and he doesn't give people um, a sickness. Um, but God obviously knows if we're going to get sick. Um, but, but he doesn't cause it. God loves you. Why would God do that? So that's contrary to his character. Now, sickness happens. And many times in the middle of the sickness, God, who works God who works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose, um, God will use everything. And I always say, John, that when we get sick, the very first thing we want to do is say, okay, Lord, is there something you want me to learn? So, good question, John. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to The Word to Stand On for Life, celebrating our 10th year of ministry on AM 630, The Word. We're taking your calls at 210-340-9585. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show, 340-9585. Before I move on to a new question, we ran out of time with John's question about God disciplining us. Uh, by making us sick or giving us cancer. Uh, I also want to say that the devil cannot give us cancer or make us sick. That's really important because as Christians, you know, we'll believe God did something bad or the devil is the cause of things. You know, getting sick and getting cancer, that's stuff that just happens. I've got some people um, that I love so much and they're just crazy in love with Jesus and serving him so faithfully. Um, and they get sick. They get sick and get cancer. Um, one of my elders is 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 now on the recovery side of of a pretty serious case of cancer, and it's been a, a more than year long fight for him now. And by the way, thank you for praying for Jory and and uh, Lisa. But Jory's now doing great, and and uh, he's had the stem cell transplants, and and he'll be able to get back in 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 public pretty soon. Um, but but God God would never do anything like that. But He got it, and it has nothing to do with anything um, other than people get sick. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The psalmist writes, and we need to understand that good things happen uh, to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. Uh, that's just the way of the world, and we Christians are not exempt from those bad things in this world that are happening. The difference, of course, is that we don't have to go through them alone. Thank you for the question, John. Here's a question from Dubs from our mobile app. Um, Why do you believe Jesus chose only Simon, Peter, James, and John to go up with him on the Mount of Transfiguration? Dubs, we don't know the whys. We know that uh, Peter, James, and John were privy to things that the others weren't privy to, experiences, uh, the raising um, from the dead of the little girl, 
um, um, they they saw things that later after the Mount of Transfiguration, it will be Peter, James, and John who are uh, invited with him into the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the the disciples stayed uh, farther away. He had Peter, James, and John come with him farther. Then Jesus went on a little bit farther. They were the ones that, that heard his cries of agony and begging his father if this if this cup can pass, if there's any way. So um, typically they're referred to as Jesus' inner circle. Now, why he chose them, we have no idea. Uh, we know they would all play um, a major role in the birth of the church. Of course, Peter um, was the one that God knew would would preach the first couple of messages where literally tens of thousands of people got saved. Uh, Peter would do the first miracle, uh, the beggar at the gate, beautiful. Um, James, Jesus knew, or God knew, would be the one who, um, uh, the first apostle that would be martyred for his faith. And of course, John, and I love John because John is the self-anointed disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think the lesson for us, Dubs, is that when we get as close to Jesus as possible, when we let him have as much of our hearts as we, we possibly can, then then we get to be in that inner circle. It's different, of course. We're not going to see a Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, typically, most of us, at least in this country, are not going to be martyred for our faith. Um, but, we, but we can all be the disciple whom Jesus loves. And Jesus will surrender as much of him to to, to to those of us who want all of him. And these three, in particular, God had plans for. Um, Jesus, remember, only did what he saw his father do. He only said what he heard his father say. So these were chosen by his father to be the inner circle. Uh, it wasn't a click. We would say, well, they're, they're clicky in this church culture. But no, this was just the plan of God. And uh, those are the three that were willing to uh, open themselves to the Lord. You know, and, and, and Dubs, I'm not comparing myself to, to Jesus at all here. But um, I, I've had people who would say to me, well, Pastor Ron, you seem to have favorites. And my, my response is always, I have no favorites. I give as much of myself as people will let me. The people who really let me into their lives, when those people really let me into their hearts, believe me, they're going to get all of me. And I think that's that's important. The people who are just kind of sitting at a distance, an arm's length, they're not going to get as close. And I think it's exactly the same with Jesus as it is with those of us who are humans. So he chose them because that was the Father's will. Um, the Father obviously had a plan because these three would, would, would figure to um, do magnificent work for the Lord at the end. So, Debs, I hope that, that answers your question. I, I like those kinds of questions a whole bunch. Here is a question from Greta. I don't know if this is my Greta or not. Uh, does the Christian faith require Adam and Eve to be real historical people? Okay, let me rephrase. This is not my Greta because Greta, that, that I know and love, knows the answer to this question. Yes, the Christian faith requires Adam and Eve to be real historical people. This isn't a story or an allegory. There isn't anything symbolic about this. Jesus himself referred to them and made examples of them in his ministry. God wasn't telling us a story. There there was no caveman. There was no meltdown man. There was um, just Adam and Eve. And believe me, you know, we see the pictures of these old, really strange-looking, old, big-headed people. And, and we're supposed to believe that we're traced, our ancestry is traced to them. Um, the answer is no. Adam and Eve were created perfect. The most perfect people ever. I am certain the best-looking people ever. And... Um, to be a Christian and not believe that, um, I I would guess maybe it's possibly a Christian. I mean, there may be people in heaven who believe that, but I can promise you there's nobody 
uh, who's producing fruit for the kingdom of God, who believes anything other than they are real historical people. I want you to think about this. If Adam and Eve weren't first, then the whole story of the fall of man, the doctrine of original sin, the doctrine of salvation, the the, the promise uh, in Genesis chapter 3 of of, um, uh, of Jesus uh, crushing the head of the serpent. Um, uh, all of those doctrines fall apart. They have no validity whatsoever. So yes, Greta, our faith requires Adam and Eve to be real historical people. And let me just say one other thing. Greta, this isn't personal to you. This is just for everybody. Um the amount of faith, now it's not good faith, it's it's just faith required to believe what science has been offering for a very long time, that we are part of an evolutionary process and we either began with a big bang or we slowly evolved over millions or even billions of years uh, from lower life forms. And the amount of faith it takes to believe that is overwhelming because there's no historical evidence. Now, science makes the statement over and over and over and over, and we've been brainwashed in school to believe that's true. But there is zero evidence at all. And so for facts, and this is what science is supposed to provide, you go to the one who is there, and only God, in the beginning God, created the heavens and the earth. In six literal days, Adam and Eve were first, and the entire human race came from them, and then even more directly, we came from Noah and his family, because apart from Noah and his family, the rest of the human race was wiped out in the judgment of the flood. So Greta, please, 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 uh, whatever your motive for asking the question is, settle this question for yourself, if Jesus said in the beginning God made them male and female and made them one flesh, he's speaking, of course, about Adam and Eve. Uh, if Jesus said that and it isn't true, then Jesus is a liar and a liar is a sinner and a sinner cannot provide salvation. Very, very important questions to, to resolve uh, in your own personal search. Brittany Ask this, when people have suffered the loss of an unsaved loved one, how do you share our faith with them? It seems cruel to talk about hell in that case. Brittany, I've been through this with people many, many times. I've had people who the Holy Spirit was letting them know that uh, they must be born again, that only Christians, born-again Christians, are going to be in heaven. Let me repeat that. Only born-again Christians are going to be in heaven. Because anybody who's not born again is not a real Christian. Religion makes no difference. Um, and, and it dawned on them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. They have to understand that people that they loved, moms and dads and brothers and sisters, even children, um, um, are, are most likely spending eternity in hell. So here's what we do, Brittany, and I do this at every funeral. Uh, when the person that we're bearing either was not a believer or people weren't sure about whether he or she was a believer. I go to Luke chapter 16, and here's what you tell them. Here's what your mother or your father would say to you. Luke chapter 16, the rich man who is suffering in torment said, at least send him to send, to tell my my family members, my brothers and sisters. And what do you want to tell them? Is it that, that heaven is real? Hell is real? And he's in torment? And they would say, believe. So that's how you do it. But you've got to do it. And Brit- Brittany, in cases where they're not sure, um, then what we can tell them with confidence is that uh, if they if they are in heaven, if they became a believer in Jesus Christ, um, the only way you're ever going to see them again is for you yourself to become a believer as well. In hell, people aren't going to know each other. They're not going to see each other. They're not going to hang out. There's not going to be a party. If you want to see somebody who's gone to heaven, 
then you've got to believe in Jesus Christ. You've got to surrender your heart to him, repent of your sins, and that's what being born again really is. So, again, we never want to be cruel or cold, Brittany, but we want to tell people the truth in love. Uh, And I've found it, frankly, very encouraging um, when I say to people who I know aren't saved uh, and they're grieving the loss of a loved one, I can say, do you want me to tell you what they would tell you if they were here right now? If they could talk to you, this is the thing that they would say. And I've never had anybody tell me no. In Luke chapter 16, a story of the rich man and Lazarus that um, has been a tool that the Lord has used. So, Brittany, I hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Brad says, uh, I don't think unity in the church is possible. The divide over issues like abortion and politics seems too deep. Brad, I know it seems that way, and I know... um, We Christians are carnal at times, and uh, our eyes are on the wrong kingdom. Um, But but Jesus said unity in the church is is important. It's not uniformity. And I think we forget that. People can, can have different philosophies or different beliefs as long as those beliefs don't conflict with what Jesus has told us. Jesus said, love is the key. Now, I think there are times when a church has to talk about Abortion, especially in these last few weeks as, as Roe v. Wade has been overturned and the, and the rest of the world is going crazy over the Supreme Court decision, um, we've got to be able to stand. The Bible gives us lots of chances to talk about standing with Jesus. Um, if you're a believer, you can't disagree with God. So when a Christian, a professing Christian says, well, I think abortion's okay, I think women should have the right to choose— um, then, then if they really believe that, they're not Christians. It really is that straightforward. If, if somebody um, disagrees with their Christ and he is the Lord, how then can we identify as belonging to him if we're not being obedient to him or if we have a difference of opinion? It's almost like we're arrogant enough to say, well, Lord, you're wrong on this one. Uh, you can't do that. My pastor used to say, Ron, you can't say Lord and no in the same sentence. Now, with politics, Brad, people hate it when I say this. But politics should never be mentioned from the pulpit. Wrong kingdom. Wrong kingdom completely. Now, I have addressed political issues. I tell people to vote. It's what they should do. It's one of the privileges that we've been given in the world that we live in. But when we're trying to shape an earthly kingdom, we don't understand that our weapons are not the weapons of this world. Our weapons are spiritual. And so the church, um, politics, is just something that shouldn't be an issue. Now, we can all have our own political viewpoints. We need, as Christians, to be sure that, that our kingdom and his kingdom were thinking the same things. But, but to take one minute of time of teaching the Bible, letting the Holy Spirit speak, to talk about candidates or political viewpoints— It's to steal from the people who came here to hear the word of God. So an abortion is not a political issue. But politics, and we're coming up on another election season this November, it's going to get worse and worse as we get closer to it. Christians need simply to use the energy and the skill and the brain and the mouth that God has given us. We need to advance his kingdom and not an earthly kingdom. The the, the truth is, Brad, Uh, It doesn't matter who wins in November. It doesn't matter who wins in the presidential election in 2024 because whoever wins is not going to fix the world that we live in. The world is too far gone. Again, I want to emphasize it doesn't mean that we can have our preferences and we ought to vote our Christian consciences. However... We have an idea that, well, if we just win the election, then the world will get better. That's not the case. This world is going down fast. We should be 
mortified by the speed at which we see the world deteriorating. That's because Jesus is getting ready to come back. And in these last days, the energy of the church and the energy of Christians needs to be spent almost solely on advancing the kingdom of God. And so when we come to church, and I get people who are angry with me, Brad, because I won't uh, pass out um, voters' guides, and I won't uh, allow candidates to come in and speak to the church. I won't endorse political candidates because I'm a pastor, and my job is to teach them about Jesus and about how to live their lives in a way that will honor him. And for those people that are wrapped up in politics who find pastors who will pander to that, well, then I'm like Jesus. I look at them as sheep without a shepherd. And sheep don't do very well without a good shepherd. So unity in the church, Jesus said, there's always going to be wheat and tares growing together in the church. And since wheat can't have anything in common with tares, tares are a picture of pretend Christians or false Christians, there'll never be that kind of unity. But let me say one other thing, Brad, and I don't know which side of the political spectrum you're coming from on this, but here's a shocking announcement. There will actually be Republicans and Democrats in heaven. Imagine that. But it's true. Thanks for the question, Brad. Mary says, Pastor Ron, I know God is perfect, but the Bible says he's jealous, so that's not perfect. Um, yeah, Mary, it is. God is perfect, and the Bible says he's perfect. But, but his jealousy, he's not jealous of us. That's the kind of jealousy, for it was out of envy that Jesus was handed over uh, to, to the Jews uh, and to the Romans. Um, that kind of jealousy, being jealous of someone else, is sinful. It's one of the things that God hates. Jealousy is, in fact, one of the examples of the bad fruit of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. However, God is jealous for us. I am a jealous God. God is so in love with me, Mary, and he's so in love with you that when somebody starts messing with either one of us, God, because he's jealous for us, is going to step in and intervene. He's going to give us a way out. He's going to, going to lead us from their influence. Why? Because he's jealous for us. When we decide to do things that aren't consistent with his revealed will, because he's jealous for us, he's going to try to do things that stop us from getting off the path that he set out before us. And that's perfect. Not only does that mean that God's perfect, but it means his love is perfect. So he's not jealous of us, but he's jealous for us. That's why um, God will never let anybody touch his glory. We can't have things in our lives that are more important than he is. God is jealous for us. Thank you for the question. Uh, I think we got a little bit of time. Five minutes. We have a caller that called in this program anonymously, or this question anonymously. Uh, he or she says, I wonder about the date when Revelation was written. How do people think it wrapped, I'm sorry, how do people think it wrapped up in in 70 AD? Uh, anonymous, I, I don't know, I don't really understand the question, wrapped up. I don't know what that means. Um, um, I think it's it's pretty generally a thought that Revelation was written in the 90s, uh, the latter part of the first century A.D., um, there is great, great um, um, uh, evidence for that kind of a, of a date of authorship. Uh, we know it wasn't written before 70 A.D. Uh, because the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And, um, and certainly uh, if the temple... Uh, had been um, uh, was still functioning, um, then then that would have been referred to uh, in the many opportunities in Revelation. I think most of the time when people say no, um, it was it was written before seventy A.D. Um, um, it's it's just a, a misunderstanding uh, about uh, the purpose of Revelation uh, as well as the timing of Revelation. So. 
um, Revelation is, uh, I, I, I actually place it at about 94 or 95 A.D., uh, and there's all kinds of evidence, and uh, I think that is by far the majority opinion. Uh, I think most of the time the people who say it was written prior to 70 A.D., uh, before the destruction of the temple um, uh, by the Roman general Titus, uh, I think they're trying to uh, justify or find justification for believing in a, uh, a, a post-tribulation rapture of the church or a pre-wrath rapture of the church uh, when, in fact, it's really simple to place things at the right time. So Anonymous, um, 90 to 95 A.D. is a pretty solid estimate. Let me um, recommend for you uh, Dwight Pentecost. Um, he wrote a, a classic book called Things to Come. Um, that deals with uh, end times, eschatology. Uh, and the other one uh, is John Walvoord, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. Uh, and he's got uh, a couple of books, one a commentary on the book of Revelation and another one just sort of an overview of the book of Revelation. He is uh, one of the preeminent uh, pre-mill, pre-trib authors. Um, uh, good stuff, really, really good stuff with those two. Thank you for the question. Well, now we're inside three minutes, so two minutes, so I've got time for one more question. Um, Anonymous Slate says, Pastor, do you have any comment on Rick Warren naming a husband and wife as co-pastors to replace him? Um, yeah, I'll comment on that. Um, um, Rick Warren, who actually is a nice guy, a wonderful man, and he is truly a believer. Every time I say that, I'll get some nut who calls me and says that I'm going to hell with Rick Warren. Uh, I know Rick personally, uh, and he's he's just wrong about a lot of things. And this is one of the things he's really, really, really wrong about. This is a a, um, a compromise with the world that we live in. Um, culturally, we're trying to be pleasing to people, and um, um, you know he his his wife Kay was ordained uh, in the last few years. I don't know how few years, uh, but they were sort of co-pastors there at the end. And they purposely went looking for a husband and wife pastor team, and it was a terrible mistake. It's sort of Ichabod, the glory is going to depart, and that's been the case at Saddleback uh, for a while. Hope that makes sense. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Tonight I'm going to be doing First Kings chapter 22, the first 38 verses, and best of all, tomorrow Paul is going to be live in the studio on the date day edition of the program. Lord willing, we'll see you then. Bye bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh, celebrating our 10th year of ministry on AM 630 The Word. The Word to Stand On for Life airs every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life is sponsored by Calvary Chapel San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.